I'll be reading this morning from Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 to 13. Matthew 25, 1 to 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in flask along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom! Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, saying, No, there will not be enough for us and for you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. And later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered and said, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have recorded, revealed um, for us, that we might know you and walk with you in ways that are honoring and true to you. And we might live, Lord, trusting you as you have saved us for. And I pray, God, that we would have just your spirits enabling to understand your word and also to live in accord with it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I was gone last week um, and um, was up in Wisconsin um, with the Torchbearer Ministry that I'm a part of, and appreciate Connor filling in for me and preaching. We've been looking at, over these last few weeks when I've been here, um, just some of the end-time events. It's not wanted it, I haven't wanted it to be a, a long, full-blown um, survey of all the end-time passages, but the principal passages that speak about the second coming of Christ, and the rapture of the church. And as far as the Gospels go, Matthew 24 and 25 are probably the most significant two chapters in all four Gospels pertaining to the second coming of Christ. And, but there, it's, a, it's a difficult passage in that there, um, there is a tendency to read the rapture into this passage. It may be there. It's not my view. I think that what Jesus is doing is simply answering the questions that these disciples are asking at the beginning of Matthew 24. And Jesus had just talked about the destruction of Jerusalem. So their first question was, when is Jerusalem going to be destroyed? Now, Jesus doesn't answer that question in Matthew. He will answer that question in Luke. But the other two questions are, what is the sign of the end of the age? and the sign of your coming. And Jesus treats those two questions as one question, and all of these two chapters are answering that question, or those two questions. What is the sign of the end of the age, and the sign of your coming? I take it that then that Jesus is speaking specifically to the Jewish people, 
There is application for the church, for Christians, but he's not talking about events that pertain to the church. Rather, he's talking about events that pertain to Israel. And so all of this really is not that hard to understand if we keep our eye on the ball. He's talking about Israel. And it, it really starts to make, I think, um, perfect sense um, as we work through it. By way of overview, because it's been a while since we started what's called the Olivet Discourse, it begins with Jesus answering that question, what will be the sign of the end of the age and the sign of your coming, by him giving um, nine signs that cover the whole tribulation period. The first one was false Christ, and then there were wars and rumors of war, famine, pestilence, earthquakes, martyrdom, false prophets, people abandoning their love, and finally the preaching of the kingdom throughout all of Israel. And then, having given those nine fairly general signs, he gives four signs that lock in on the second half of the tribulation, and the first of those being the abomination of desolation. I won't make a comment about my daughter's bedroom this time. And then the great tribulation, and which will be like none the earth has ever seen before. And then false Christ, false miracles, false reports. And then finally, the sign of the Son of Man shall appear in the sky after the earth has gone dark. And so it seems to be a reference to the Shekinah glory, which will illumine the entire earth. So once he's given all of those signs, that has answered the question. When, what will be the sign of the end of the age, and the end of the age, particularly the end of the age of the Gentiles that Daniel prophesied of? And the sign of your coming, and the last sign that he gives is the sign of the Son of Man appearing in the sky. So he's answered their questions. But this discourse, this sermon, goes on for another chapter and a half. And what he's doing here now, it seems to be just trying to drive home the lessons, the application that Israel is to take from everything that he has said. Basically, to sum up, he's saying Israel is going to go through a time of tremendous persecution and tribulation. Obviously, that's going to encompass the whole world. No one's going to escape this. And it will also involve those people who have come to faith during that time. And there will be many believers who are persecuted during that. So again, there is application to all believers, though the focus that Jesus has here is on Israel. And so now, driving home the application, the lessons from this, he has a a number of illustrations that he uses. The first began in verse 32 of chapter 24, the illustration of the fig tree. The generation that sees these signs will be the generation that sees the second coming of Christ. doesn't say they're going to see the rapture. They're going to see Christ establish his kingdom on earth. The same generation that sees these signs will see Christ come again. The fig tree being an illustration that when the, when the fig puts on its leaves, you know that summer is at hand. And then he'll say, the illustration, it, like, it will be like the days of Noah where people are just continuing on their life as though this is normal. And we looked at that. That seems to, again, be 
be what's characterizing our world today. As the world is getting um, a more troubled place, people are simply calling it the new normal and just getting as though we just have to be used to this, like the days of Noah. And he said, but the particular thing is, in the days of Noah, it wasn't the righteous who were, were taken away. It was the unrighteous who were taken away, taken away in judgment by the flood that came upon the earth. And so that's not a picture of the rapture. It's a picture of those that don't know the Lord being judged. And so that's what he's speaking of when he, when he speaks of Israel. He says that ultimately at the end of the tribulation, he's going, he'll get, and he'll get into this more, is that the unrighteous will be removed and the righteous will be left. He speaks about a thief coming, and he says that the owner of the house knew when the thief was coming, he would ready himself for it. He speaks about an unfaithful servant that his master leaves in charge of all of his household, but the unfaithful servant believed that his master wasn't going to return. And so he was lazy and indulgent and, 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 and unfaithful to the charge. But the main point, he didn't believe his master would return. And I spent some time there that we think unfaithfulness, oftentimes we, our first thought is somebody's not doing their job correctly. But we're missing the point. The reason they're not doing their job correctly is because of a lack of faith in what the master has said. And so the issue is unbelief. And so Jesus is warning Israel, when your next day of visitation comes, you better be ready. You better be full of faith. Not to be, don't be like you were the first time, looking for the coming, but missing it the first time because of your lack of faith. That shouldn't be repeated for Israel the second time. And now, finally, chapter 25, the ten virgins. And the first thing, you probably have this in your Bible, is that this is a parable. And we have to keep that in mind. Parables are very difficult to handle. And I'm telling you, you you look up, you pull six commentaries off a shelf and look at any parable and they'll give you seven interpretations. It's like lawyers, you know, for every, you know, for every five lawyers, you have six, you know, explanations of what you're supposed to do. And so parables are much the same way. They are difficult to understand. But one thing, all agree with parables. They are not allegories. You're not supposed to try to make every detail have a spiritual, some kind of significance to it. They are teaching one lesson. And so if we don't understand anything else, get the one lesson. And the one lesson from these parables is either be on the alert or be ready. That much everybody agrees with. So it's all the details that get confusing. So this parable, he's, we'll just read it. Then, then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable, comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, the first thing we need to notice about this parable, there is no mention of the bride. These, are, these ten virgins are not called the bride. There is a, there are, they're just virgins. We don't know who they are, but they are not called the bride in this passage. There is a bridegroom and there are ten virgins. So if you believe the church will go through the tribulation, you have to interpret the ten virgins 
as the bride of the church. But there's no place in Scripture that I'm aware of where the church is described as multiple virgins. So that's a bit of a problem. Plus, it's simply reading into the text to say that this is the bride when the bride is not mentioned. Two of the oldest translations we have of the Bible, the Syriac and the Vulgate, actually, when they translated this passage, says they wrote, when the bridegroom comes with his bride, there will be ten virgins waiting. And so they insert into the text bride. Now, there's no Greek manuscript evidence for that, but that tells us the early church understood that the bride is not the ten virgins. And I think the early church was right. This is not about the church. Jesus, through every aspect of these two chapters, is talking about Israel, not about the church. And so Israel is in Scripture represented, strangely enough, as a virgin. Because the last thing they were was spiritually pure. And yet, Scripture represents them as a virgin that played the harlot. Now, whether it's multiple virgins, again, that's a problem. But to read into it as this is the bride seems to be a bigger problem than saying this is a reference to Israel as everything else has been in these chapters. So, of these ten virgins, five of them take oil with them, and five of them don't. Now, again, we have to be careful. But it is true that typically in Scripture, oil represents the Holy Spirit. And it's it's very, very common. Now, there might be an occasional time when it doesn't. Maybe this is one of those times when it doesn't. But I'm inclined to think, again, here it does. And the idea being that, for example, in the Old Testament, when the king was anointed with oil... That oil was a picture of his need for the enabling of the Spirit of God for his role as king. He couldn't do it in his own strength. He needed the Spirit. And so these ten virgins, five of them take oil with them, and five don't. These little lamps could have fit in the palm of your hand. Some of them were bigger, but many of them, archaeologists are still digging them up today, are small enough just to fit in the palm of your hand. And so to not take oil with you was stupid. Because, I mean, if you've ever seen one of these things, they just hold maybe an ounce or two of oil. They're very small lamps. And that oil is going to be consumed rapidly. So only the most foolish of person wouldn't take oil with them when you also understand that typically the bridegroom came at night. So why wouldn't you take oil? It's not because they're stupid, even though I just made fun of them. It's because what? They don't believe the bridegroom is coming. See, that's the only reason they wouldn't take it. It's not like, oh, I I was just absent-minded. No, the oil cost some money. And it was an additional thing to carry. And they just thought, if I can take a big purse or a little purse, and I can get away with a little purse, I'll take a little purse. And so they took their little purse. And the reason is because they didn't believe that the bridegroom was going to show up that night. Lack of faith. 
That's the common denominator that runs through these passages. And Jesus is saying to Israel, you missed the hour of your first visitation because of your lack of faith. You didn't believe in me. Don't do it again. I'm coming again. Israel, you better believe. Now, the first time around, there were many in Israel who did believe. They didn't all not believe. And the second time, it's going to be repeated, sadly enough. There will be many Jews who believe, but there will be others who don't. And so Jesus is simply saying, get ready. And so, the, the, again, this is why it's not an allegory. Because if the oil represents the Holy Spirit, there are aspects of this parable that don't fit the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. For example, you can go out and buy more. You can't buy the Holy Spirit. You can get some from the other people. No, you can't. Nobody can give you the Holy Spirit. Now, regarding the purchase, though, it is interesting that in Isaiah 55, verse 1, Isaiah writes and says, Come to God and purchase your salvation. Basically, paraphrase. But then immediately afterwards saying, And yet you don't need money. Why don't you need money? Because it's the free gift of God. And so I believe that simply Jesus is saying to Israel, All of Israel needs to be ready. It is not enough to believe that the Messiah is coming. All of Israel at the, first, at the first century believed the Messiah was coming. You would be hard-pressed to find a Jew who did not believe in the coming of the Messiah. Because they believed their Bibles. But that doesn't mean they were spiritually prepared, spiritually ready. And Jesus is saying, when it comes to the second coming, all of Israel is going to believe that the Messiah is going to come. But that doesn't mean they're going to be ready spiritually. doesn't mean they're saved. And so Jesus applies it. Verse 12. He answered and said, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. And that's the third time now that Jesus has said, No one knows the day or the hour. Be on the alert and be ready. Now there's a second parable. The parable of the talents. And this one also has caused a lot of confusion. Our first thought we run to to abilities, talents and abilities. That's not what he's talking about. Talent is a unit of measurement usually reserved for money. And it was anywhere from, um, um, where are my notes here? 58 pounds to 80 pounds, I believe it is, um, that a talent um, could be. And so that was a lot of money that was being entrusted, 58 pounds to 80 pounds of either silver or gold. So if it was silver, that would be at least $2,000 in silver per talent. If it was gold, that would have been $30,000 in gold. So even the guy that gets one talent is getting a ton of money entrusted to him. The average day wage was one denarius. And so, and so that, that is just, a, doesn't even come close to, um, to amounting to a talent. So these men were all being entrusted with a lot of money. Now, it says that 
the master goes on a journey. One guy gets five, one guy gets three, one guy gets one. Um, And so when the master comes back, he finds that the guy that had been given five gave him five more. The guy that had been given three gave him three more. So they all doubled their master's money. And the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. And once again, that word faithful. And because they were full of faith, they demonstrated that faith by multiplying the master's money. Now, I want to just just stop and make a comparison here. And it's with David and his mighty men. Remember those stories about David? He had the 30 mighty men that were around him. And we read, and it says, David's mighty men, and then it records all the exploits of those men. In other words, their victories in battle. And so we read it, mighty men of valor, because they are mighty men and they're listed with David because of the great things they did. But we missed the point. They did great things because of their faith in God, not because they were great men. They weren't great men doing great things. They were men with a great God who was trusting their God to do great things. The reason that David had these men around him was because they were men like David. They were men of faith. That just as David killed Goliath by faith, these men were killing their enemies by faith. And so the point is they were mighty men of faith. And the acts of valor were simply testament to the faith. And that's what's going on here. These men doubling their master's money is a testament of their faith. Not of themselves, but they truly believed in their master. And in evidence of their faith in their master, they went out and doubled the money. And so you go, who could do that? That's the point. I mean, if you and I were given that much money and weren't told when the master was going to come back, but just, but you know, and you, just, and you go, and the master shows up and both guys have doubled their money, what are the odds of that? And neither guy knew when the money was going to come back. See, this is supposed to point us back to the activity of God. They were trusting God, and look what God did. But we look at what they did. You see? I think we're reversing it. We're putting the emphasis where it shouldn't be. And the one guy did nothing with the master's money. He buried it because of a lack of faith. What did he not believe? He didn't believe the master was coming back. You see? The other guy said, we don't know when, but we know he will because he said he would. But the guy with the one said, I'm not so sure. Listen to what this writer says about this one with the one talent. When he says, just read the text first, where he says, I've got to find it myself now. Where the, this man says in verse 24, And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master... I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. What do you call a man who gathers where he didn't plant? A thief. He's gathering what he didn't plant. Isn't that amazing? He is insinuating that his master is a hard, untrusting, miserly, money-focused man, and he's just after all he can get. This is not a man who has a high concept of his master. 
And then I was afraid. That's not true. And I, he just, he's, it's just, all of this is misrepresenting the master and misrepresenting his intentions. And I hid your talent in the ground because I was afraid that I would lose it. Nonsense. Verse 26, and his master sees through it and he says, you wicked and lazy slave. Wicked is a word that is typically reserved for the unbeliever. You didn't believe I would return. You wicked and lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered not. And I don't think he's necessarily 